Good morning. Go O's. Go Ravens. You know, we welcome everybody here, even Steelers fans and Yankees fans, trusting that the power of the Holy Spirit is adequate to correct even the most grave defects of character. Uh, And yes, I did neglect to mention thank you to uh, Steve and uh, all the folks who helped out at the festival yesterday, and uh, well, well done on their part in getting everything put away before the rainstorm came. Yeah. Oh, great. Terrific. Great. All right. Thanks, Steve. So today we are ending our series on the Song of Songs. I know. I know. Time flies when you're having fun. We, uh, we have spent the summer in the Song of Songs, which is the one of the 66 books of the Bible that is entirely about what? Sex. Sex. It is all about sex. It is a beautiful love poem, really a collection of love poems that are written about a woman and a man who are deeply and passionately and intensely physically in love with each other. And so as we bring this series to a close, I want to give everybody full assurances that this is not the last time we will ever have anything at all to say about sex here. Uh, I certainly don't want anybody to stop paying attention to the subject just because we're not studying it anymore. When we get into Romans next week, we will have a rather abrupt change of tone and of style and of subject. But this is a subject that is relevant to us. It's important, and it's one that uh, demands our attention as we have been giving it. You, You may have noticed over on the side there we have number of books from the library, uh, our library, my library, that uh, deal with the subject would, would encourage, we'll leave those out for a week or two, encourage you to help yourself to those, and you can discreetly leave them back there uh, as, as you're done with them. But today I want to go and recap our series. Let's take a look at what we have learned. And I don't know about you, I know that I find wisdom in any number of places, and I find that, of course, According to the doctrine of general revelation, God can reveal things about himself and his world through all sorts of ways. One of them is the humble fortune cookie. Now, sometimes people have made a joke out of fortune cookies. Most of you are familiar with the way you can turn any fortune into a joke, right? You read it, and then at the end, you put the words in bed, right? So you will find yourself surrounded by many friends in bed, right? You will achieve much success in business, in bed. You could, by the way, there's a, a, you can do a PG-13 version of that for kids you do in the bathroom. They love that. (laughs) Comedy gold. But uh, I have, uh, and and I do, whenever I run across a fortune that I find particularly amusing with the in bed bit, I always share it with Mary. Um, And I've been keeping them for the last few years, wondering if they might have some application here in the Song of Songs series. And and it just turns out that I have some that do. So as we go through our our sermons in the series, the first one, we introduced the book. We showed that it was uh, a collection of love poems that were written uh, 
thousands and thousands of years ago about these two young lovers. We have this, uh, the, the occasional friends or the chorus chiming in on the side, perhaps just a literary device. Uh, but we, we have this picture, this beautiful picture of, of young, unadulterated love. And so this, this first, uh, first uh, fortune I thought was good, to keep true to the dreams of your youth. And I think when you keep true to the dreams of your youth in bed, that means, among other things, that you remember that sex is something that God gave us. It's something that he thought up. He was not surprised when people started doing it. And it is something, as we mentioned, that God gives us to be enjoyed in the context of, of marriage. Uh, but, you know, I think most of us, when we're dreaming about our lives when we're young, we don't say, you know what I really hope is that I really hope when I'm 30 I'll have a sexless marriage. What I really want to do is I really want to grow up and have a situation where my spouse is bitter at me because we're not having sex. Or I really want to have a situation where I grow up and my spouse feels like it's a burden to make love to me. That's what I really want. No, we don't want that. We dream. We hope for a marriage that's characterized by mutual love and respect and affection and fondness. and Celebration and delight in one another in every way imaginable. And so I think so often what we hear from pulpits about sex is don't do that and don't do that and don't and whatever you do, don't do that. So much of what Scripture has to say is do that, right? Well, the first thing God said about sex was what? Be fruitful and multiply. You too, go do that. Don't get behind the bush when you do, but do that. So be true to the dreams of your youth. When I saw that, it just it struck such a chord in me. It made me think, yeah, there's sex is something God has given us, something that is beautiful, something that is, that is to, to be delighted in. And it's good when you are not married, that you look forward to being married, that you, you dream about it, you get excited about it, you think about it when you're engaged, that you are thrilled with the thought of being with your spouse. It's a good thing when you're at the office and you're thinking about what might happen when you come home. These are the kinds of things that we're supposed to dream about. And, and if it weren't so, I don't think God would have given us an entire book of Scripture which is filled with this passionate, erotic love poetry. So that's the first one. And then the next sermon we had was called Sense and Sensuality. And what I talked about was the fact that we too often can think about all these high-minded ideals and principles without appreciating the simple sensual delights that God gives us. He didn't just give us certain pleasures like the pleasure of a flower or the pleasure of a sunset or the pleasure of a fresh strawberry, but not want us to celebrate those other pleasures. No, he wants us to celebrate in the way he's given them, the pleasures that he's given us to enjoy. And so... We can't let our great ambitions, our high ideals, our noble thoughts get in the way of enjoying the small joys that we can have in bed. Somebody said amen, so thank you for that. The next sermon, Joe preached, and it was called Baby You So Fine. 
And he talked about the fact that in this book we have people who are absolutely thrilled with each other, who love to think about each other, who love to look at each other, who gaze upon each other with joy and delight and affection. And I think what I, what I hear there is, is a sense of, uh, of appreciation of the majesty of your lover. If we were to meet the people, if there were in fact specific people that were in, in the mind of the biblical author, if we were to meet them, I think they would probably look quite ordinary. They, you know, last night I, did a, I conducted a wedding down the hill at Gray Rock, and I'm just struck every time I do a wedding with how beautiful everybody looks. The bride is, every bride really is beautiful. And the bridesmaids look just stunning in their dresses. But if they rolled here this morning, you, I might not recognize them as the people who were arrayed in their finery last night. You know, there's a sense in which your, your lover takes on that quality of, of beauty, of majesty. She even talks about her lover and compares him to Solomon coming in all of his glory with, with all of his carriages and all of the pomp that comes with the, the royal procession. Or maybe he was just a humble shepherd. But to him, or to her, he's, his glory, his majesty rivals that of Solomon. It's good for us to take that kind of joy in our spouse. It's good for us to think that well of the person that we're with. And so it's good for us to say we have gotten what our heart desires in bed because you're made to desire that. You're made to look on your beloved with joy and with delight. The next sermon, uh, I have to confess that uh, I lied when I was talking about this. This is the sermon when we had all the kids with us. This this was like, uh, you know, I, I guess if they ever had like, instead of top chef, if they had top pastor, they would say, okay, you're going to preach a, song on, uh, a sermon on Song of Songs and the kids are going to be there. Uh, we, we talked to the kids and I said to everybody, I said, look, for the adults, this is really not for you. This is just for the kids. Sometimes the kids are here and they have to listen along. I lied. This was not just for the kids. And part of what I wanted to talk about was the fact that here in community, we have the opportunity to learn from one another. We have the opportunity to support one another in the vows we've made. Last night, I asked everybody there assembled, will you support Nick and Katie in the vows that they have made? And they all said, we will. Of course, it would be awkward if they didn't. But there is every friend joining in your success, and that's one aspect of community. But here's the other aspect of community, that little eyes are watching. And one of the points that I was hoping you all could take away from that is that just as our children in this body will learn from your good examples, they will learn from your bad ones as well. They will learn not only from the good choices that you make that they find out about or that they notice, but they will learn from the bad ones as well. They can hear from you a story of, yes, I was doing something that I shouldn't have been doing, and then I changed. And then, by God's grace, I was able to grow out of that. Or they can hear the story of, yeah, well, I'm still kind of doing that. I kind of know I shouldn't, but I am, and so it goes. Little eyes are watching you. The decisions that you make, 
do not only affect you, they affect our entire community and they affect, especially affect our children. We do not live in a vacuum. We do not live in isolation. God in his wisdom has placed us in community and that's just the way it is. The next sermon was called The Wild Thing. That was the one where we had the, uh, the uh, Robert Burns poem sung and we talked about how we have these various pleasures talked about in the Song of Songs, these pleasures of, of, of nature, the beauty that we see. And we have pleasures of cultivation. Uh, but we also have pleasures that are a bit more visceral. We have pleasures that come from things like predation. We have animals described in the Song of Songs that the people are likened to that are dangerous animals, the animals that survive by eating other animals. I was, uh, was at a brunch yesterday with these sweet little old ladies who were discussing the various birds and how they survive by eating other birds. I didn't know that's what elderly Goucher alumni talked about when they got together, but evidently it is. Nature is red in tooth and claw, and there is an aspect of human sexuality that is deeply rooted in our animal nature. And I think that we are not supposed to completely cram that down and we're not supposed to completely transcend that. At times we are to embrace that, again, within the context of marriage. We're to embrace that as part of the way that God has wired us, part of the way he has made us. Sometimes the simplest answer is not to overanalyze, but to embrace the fact that you are a human animal who wants to do the things that you have been made to want to do with the person that you're married to. So go do them. And if the person you're with wants to do them, then do them. Sometimes the simplest act answer is, in fact, to act. And then Joe, majestically, and I was so impressed, I told him I'd give him five bucks if he changed his sermon title to Release the Kraken, and he did. And I ultimately gave him his five bucks. Release the Kraken talks about the Joe talked about the the fact that uh, T-Rex remember that image from from uh, Jurassic Park T-Rex doesn't really want to be fed T-Rex wants to hunt and it kind of links to that idea of there being a certain amount of wildness a certain animal quality to humanity that again within the proper bounds be who you are if you are somebody who is a human, who has passionate sexual drives, and within the context of marriage, within those bounds, live those out. Be who you are. Just do it. That's not bad. There's not Sex in marriage is not something you should be feeling guilty about. If you do, you have gotten some very, very bad programming along the way. Please help me to undo that. Or let me help you to undo that. We then, in the next sermon, talked about the picture of the garden that we get. We get in the in the song, we get the garden and we get the vineyards. And and of course, gardens and vineyards are not things that spring up automatically. You don't walk through a forest and suddenly come upon a garden and think, "Oh wow, what a what a coincidence! There's a garden here." No, somebody made that garden. Somebody cultivated it. Somebody carefully planned it out and took care of it. And the the truth is that we have. Uh, the, the, to, to, have a, to have a garden, it needs to be nurtured and it, it needs to be protected. And I think some people will treat 
their marriages as though they had a spare in the trunk in bed. Some people take for granted the marriages that they have. Our, our marriages need to be nurtured and need to be protected. If they don't, the healthy marriage doesn't spring up on its own. It doesn't happen by accident. It's something that we are called to nurture and to protect. The next week, Mary and I got a chance to do the question and answer, and of course, so this is what came to me. My dearest wish, of course, has come true. Yeah, one of the reasons is because the one time I gave Mary this portion and she wrote that on it. I think, I think as we wrap this up, probably the, 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 the closing idea when we think about sex and what Song of Songs teaches us about it about it is that we have to both think globally and act locally. We have to think about that long-term goal, long-term dream of a, of a healthy sexuality that we express in the context of marriage and that we don't outside the context of marriage. That we think about what God has called us to and then we act now to do the things that we need to do to move toward that. No garden grows up overnight, if your garden is overgrown, if it desperately needs weeding, if the walls are broken down, then uh, start working on those and you'll find that it grows eventually. But be patient. Do the things you can do now. There are marriages in this body that are healthy because people have cultivated them, they have nurtured them, they have protected them. There are gardens that are healthy now but were not went through times when they were neglected. Marriages that stand as a testimony to God's grace, the power of His Holy Spirit to overcome our sin, to overcome our own weaknesses, our own human frailty. And I think that's the message that I hope we all hear. And This will be something that Paul deals with quite a bit as we go into Romans, that God's grace is sufficient to deal with all of our junk. That There's no sexual sin that we have committed that has put us outside of his favor, that has put us out of reach of his forgiving power. That this is not something that is so awful that God can't even bear to imagine that we might have done it. God's grace is sufficient for even the things that we are doing right now that we are not even willing to admit to ourselves, let alone to anybody else. Focus on your long-term goal. Don't hesitate to act now in bed according to God's grace that he gives us so freely. And I've said all along, and I do believe it, that this book is about sex. Over the years, Commentators, both Jewish and Christian, have looked at this and they've said, no, well, this is can't just be about sex because that would be kind of icky and the holy God wouldn't have done that. It must be something else. This must be an allegory. This must be a, a story about the love between God and his people Israel. Or maybe it's between Christ and the church. Or maybe this is the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual believer. And there's a rich tradition, especially among medieval Christians, 
of people who read this book and who meditated on it and who wrote about it and, and who read this as a story of God's love for his people or even of God's love for the Son, Jesus Christ, expressed through the Holy Spirit. I would note most of those people were celibate, or at least should have been. Most of those people were living vowed lives of celibacy. And perhaps for people who are living lives of celibacy, that's a good, re- good way to read this book. But I don't think this book is allegory. I don't think it's about something other than sex, because it is about that. But at the same time, and there is always a however, isn't there? Even if Song of Songs is not about those things, what it, about, what it, point, what it is about, sex, can point to those things. And what I mean by that is that we have in Scripture these pictures of things like marriage, not just being about marriage, but as being something that points toward the union one day of Christ and His church. We read in Revelation the story of God's uh, people dressed like a bride for her husband. There is a sense in which sex involves the kind of mystical unity, the sort of transcendent out-of-body experience that just for a brief couple of moments will get us outside of this world and how we experience it and all of its mundaneness. There's a sense in which it points towards something that does transcend our experience, the reality that we know, a reality that's more real than what we think is real. And I wonder if on the day when my lover comes to call me home, on the day when My long dead body is given its resurrection. I wonder if Jesus won't speak those words in the Song of Solomon 2.10. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. certainly wouldn't be out of keeping with the kind of quotation out of context we get in the New Testament all the time. I don't know. The Song of Songs is about sex. That's what God's given us. And so we receive that gratefully from Him. And now business hours are over. Baby. Let's pray. Lord God, we receive with gratitude from Your hand what You've given us. Those of us who are married receive with gratitude the place that we are in. We ask that you would enable us to be faithful to the vows that we've made to each other. That we would be loving and generous and kind and supportive. That we would respect one another, seek one another's good. In bed as everywhere else. And those of us who are not married, we pray that you would keep us faithful to what you call us to as people who are not married. That we would look forward with anticipation 
to what it is that you have in store for us, but that we would not decide that you don't really have what's best for us in mind. I pray that in all of this we would be a community where we sustain one another, where we pray for one another, where we support one another, where we rejoice as we are, where we are, in the condition we're in. We thank you for the gift to us that is your holy word and the song of songs. We pray that what we have done this summer as a church would bear fruit in our lives and our interactions with our neighbors, those who know you and those who don't. Pray that ultimately this would be a delight to you and that it would redound to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name.